infinite turtle, the, the waves through the ether fuzz roll on forever. <laughs> This is Death by DVD Does Masters of Horror, and I am your host, Harry Scott Sullivan. I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. On this episode, we have maybe the most important episode of Masters of Horror to discuss. We've got the flagship episode. Not only is it written by Mick Garris, it is directed by Mick Garris, who coincidentally created Masters of Horror. This is the first episode directed by the Master, as well written by the Master. Created in 2005, Masters of Horror ran for two seasons, technically three, though it changed names, and the show itself was created by Mick Garris. It was a vehicle for the masters of what we all love so much to create these tiny little pieces of horror pie for all of us to devour and consume but this time things are a little bit different the writer of the story is directing the film and it's the creator of the entire show so it's a big one and i would like to begin this all with a discussion on mick garris what better way to start the show on previous episodes we have discussed how these dinners came to be the dinners of masters that later on served as the principal people involved in the show. We've briefly discussed here and there Mick Garris's part and all that, but before we discuss Mick Garris's work, let's discuss him. I think, personally, Mick Garris is one of the most quintessential and important people in the, the horror genre and the horror field, whether it be mainstream horror to independent horror. Mick Garris is a friend to it all. And we can go back to the very beginning. Some of Mick's earliest work, or as I like to lovingly call him, Mickey with the good hair, some of his earliest features, making a monster movie inside The Howling, the making of The Thing, the making of Chilling Tale, the making of Videodrome. As early as 1981, Mick Garris was working as hard as possible with preserving horror history, with taking these masters and showing more than just the shock, just the gore, just the films, the art and the work that goes into making these films. The integrity of Mick Garris's career is, is massive, and it has such weight to it. He's in the Thriller video. Michael Jackson. Thriller. Mick Garris. His films are often looked down upon, and I am guilty of saying beforehand, I don't like Mick Garris movies that much. And I've got to say, I've been a film critic for the past 17, 18 years of my life. I have been a part of this show and run this show for the past 15 years. I understand the point of criticism. I understand what purpose it serves. But as I'm getting older, I just have absolutely no interest in if a movie is good or if a movie is bad. That's up to you. That's up to each individual audience member to dictate that. And again, like I just said, I completely understand the purpose of criticism and what it serves. But me, personally, I've grown past a point for dictating whether something is good or bad because I don't care. 
I love plenty of bad movies. I love plenty of good movies, or, or what you would say, quote-unquote, historically good movies. Movies that have high scores and audiences are friendly with them. Sure, I like Goodfellas. It's fantastic. But I also really like Redneck Zombies. There's a duality. And I don't have an interest in saying whether something is good or bad. I don't, I don't want to direct you to that. I have a deeper interest in discussing the art, whatever it may be at hand. It doesn't really matter. Whatever the subject is, I'd like to talk about how it was made. I would like to talk to people that were involved with it and what it means, what it means to me, what it feels like to me, what it stands for for me. Whether it's good or bad, I just don't care. That's completely and totally 100% up to you. And it's such a decisive thing. You say something's bad and then it's stained forever. Oh, you hate so-and-so. You can't stand so-and-so. And I have said before on this very show, I don't like the work of Mick Garris that much. Does that mean I don't like Mick Garris? Completely no, not at all. Not the least bit. And that's why I want to start the show off with this discussion of Mick Garris, because I think he's so integral and so important to more than just like a genre, more than a machine, but horror in general. You know, it's not like it's it's a cult. It's not like it's a clique. It's not like something you can belong to. You you like horror. You love horror. You enjoy horror. That's fine. There's a scene for everything, but the preservation of horror history, the acknowledgement, whether it's a huge budget or an indie budget thing, this almost protection that Mick Garris offers, and from his podcast postmortem to his work doing behind-the-scenes features before he got into a, a bigger Hollywood thing. He was a he was a receptionist for George Lucas at one point. If you sit down and you look at the people that Mick has worked with that have worked for him or he's worked for them, it's just insane. Absolutely everyone, but this man still, at the end of the day, always comes back to horror and always comes back to a, a gratuitous love of horror and monsters, and he is, he's a grown-up monster kid. Uh, all of us had it deep inside of us at one point when we were children. You, you love something so deeply, and it's so terrifying and mystifying to you, and then you grow up, and it sort of fades away. You don't have toys and figures and masks anymore, but Mick Garris is like this adult successful version of that child we all still have inside of us that we wish we could you know, let loose onto the world. His unadulterated love and passion for horror is, I think, exceeded by absolutely no one. And the proof in the pie is what Masters of Horror is, not just him being able to throw a bone to some of his friends, some of these legends. And it doesn't come down to, it's so blasé to say, well, he was getting his friend's work. I can't believe everyone involved was a close personal friend of Mick Garris. I'm sure he was cordial with a lot of these people, had met them, they've done these dinners together, they acknowledged each other as peers, but I think a lot of it, and and pardon me if I'm, I'm wrong, I don't mean anything that I'm saying in any insinuating nor rude manner, this is just personal thoughts on Mick, I feel a lot of these people he, he he's a fan of. And that's why he ended up knowing them. He had the, the, the place and the time and the power, and he organized these things. But at its core, Mick is a fan of these people, and he's enamored with their work and what they've done for horror. I mean, let's go all the way back and, and look at, like, James Whale 
uh, Todd Browning, these early horror figureheads, these people that shaped and changed how so many of our heroes, like Don Coscarelli and Toby Hooper and Dario Argento, all of which are featured on Masters of Horror, what made them, Alfred Hitchcock, these uh, archetypes that became the original masters, they influenced these people so greatly, and it's something that I don't think Mick Garris ever has let go of. He has always uh, crept in the graveyard. He's kind of always been around, and every moment of his life, everything he does is is uh, protective of that genre, and things are very easy now. You can be a horror fan, there's no problem. But in the 70s and the 80s and the 60s and the 50s, it was satanic and evil, and there was always a sense of filth that was included with being a horror fan, that people would look at you like you, you were talking about Debbie Does Dallas if you brought up Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They were masturbatorial pornography, and I bring this up all the fucking time. I don't think porn isn't an art. Just making a reference here. And that's how horror has, has historically been treated. So now it's very easy to look at somebody like Mick Garris and be like, oh, he's cute. I like his show. But he has been on the front lines for about 40, 50 years at this point defending the honor of horror. And it was a point in time for all of us that you weren't treated nicely. You couldn't get all these cool horror movie t-shirts and toys and figures that you can now. It was a very hard collector's world and it was just the same as being into pornography. You were treated so dirty and I do heavily think there is a difference between something like Critters 2 or a film with Jamie Gillis where he is butt-fucking somebody for 40 minutes and that's what he was good at. Jamie Gillis was good at a lot of stuff, but specifically, it was doing uh, butt-fucking films. And God bless him. Is it art? That's not the fucking point of the discussion. Mick Garris is. I like how in just, uh, just a few, few moments that we have gone from Mick Garris and James Whale and Todd Browning to Jamie Gillis and sodomy. <laughs> this is a wholesome program for everyone. Share this with the kids. Put this on on Christmas Eve and let everybody hear about it. But I, I, I have such a, a, a love for Mick Garris. He seems like a family member. I, I just have the greatest adoration for him. Whenever I see him post something, I just want to heart react it and love it and, and care react or whatever. I think he is somebody that should be protected at complete and all total cost because what he stands for is is a horror world where everyone is equal and happy and he seems to have fought for this his entire career and when you look at his body of work i was just talking about critters too one of the first major features that mcgarris directed critters 2 the main course it's beloved by all fans he did freddy's nightmares and then psycho the beginning Sleepwalkers, I think, is the, the, the most talked about Mick Garris film. And when most people will reference Mick and say, I don't like him that much, I don't like his movies that much, have you seen Sleepwalkers? That one always drives me crazy because it's like, hell yes, yeah, I've seen Sleepwalkers, and how dare you insinuate that you could even possibly say something bad about the movie that brought us Clovis the Cat. 
I love sleepwalkers. That's always my defense. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Mick Garris made sleepwalkers. Are you crazy? The Stand miniseries. He did an episode of Tales from the Crypt. The audience-splitting made-for-TV Shining miniseries. His body of work as a, a director, I don't think is as important as Mick as an artist. And from what I, I've researched and read and know of, of Mick Garris, what's available to, to read and research and find on the internet, it doesn't seem to me like he had a choice. It seems like he was born to be an artist. And that's very presumptive of me to say, but his chosen art form is a glorious one and my favorite form of art, uh, filmmaking and his preservation and love of horror filmmaking, you can't help but let it seep into you. You listen to even like 15, 20 minutes of an episode of his podcast, and you can hear it in his voice. Mick Garris truly cares about the genre. And I could go into a whole big interlude about the genre and, and what it's like and scenes and clicks and all sorts of stuff like that, but it's, it's not part of the point, and it doesn't matter. Things have changed from 1985, obviously, politically and monetarily, to simple things, like what's popular, what people are interested in. And in the last 10 years or so, there has been a, a terrific, wonderful revival of horror, exploitation, cult, gore, lost, strange, weird, unusual films. It has become something of an art form. You have companies like A24 that are pumping out movies that canon would have been putting out in the 80s. Well, maybe. That's a bit bold of me to say, but they're canon-esque. <laughs> Let's say canon-esque. I don't know if canon would have put The Lighthouse out in, in 1985, so that's kind of silly of me to say. But still, I, you get the vibe. You get what I'm saying. And during this revival if you will, of horror in the last few years, we've had this constant, and it's always been Mick Garris. He's always been there for us. He's always offered something that is so overwhelmingly positive. Uh, it's it's kind of beautiful when you start looking at his entire body of work. All Mick has ever done is given. Every single thing he's done has been given, uh, and it's like a fan service, even from the beginning, like Critters 2. He puts everything that he can muster into delivering what he feels is the best for the fans. And like it or not, you have to take into consideration the work that goes into the things that he does. You might not like how the movie goes or how the story goes, but one thing is for sure when it comes to Mick Garris, he doesn't make a bad product. You might not like it, and the story could be incoherent, whatever, but goddamn, if it's not shot wonderfully, if it doesn't have great sound, color grading, every technical aspect is given to you with a great deal of love and tender caring. And that's a great way to describe Mick, in my opinion. I think he's a very tender, caring person. He began shooting his own films as early as 10 or 11 on Super 8 and has been a horror kid his whole life. As of the recording of this episode in 2023, I believe Mick Garris is 72 years old. 72 years of this. 
just nonstop. He's never taken a break. He's never strayed away from his true passion, and it's so evident, and the love in his art is amazing. And it's uh, Masters of Horror. That's the show. That's the name of the show. You have these quintessential people, Toby Hooper, Dario Argento, John Carpenter. These names are forever instilled with horror. How could anyone not consider John Carpenter one of the greatest directors of all time? He made Halloween. He made so much more. He made Halloween. He made The Thing. He did so much. But you say Mick Garris, and it's always kind of left off like, oh, yeah, Mick Garris. You know, I think he wrote Hocus Pocus, right? He did, he did some stuff. But that some stuff is 72 years of never stopping. And it's very easy to be negative, something that I think is overwhelming, especially with, you know, I, I don't mean the surge or rise because they've been around for a while. We've been around for a while podcasts and film podcasts and film critiquing in general. Joe Bob Briggs says this all the time, and I really agree with him, but the internet killed fucking criticism. There, <laughs> believe it or not, is an art to understanding how films are made. It's not just, I don't like this, but why don't you like it? Do you have anything more to say than negativity? I'm exhausted by it. I'm just broken and completely exhausted by it. And going back to where we began, I just have no interest in telling you whether a movie is good or whether a movie is bad. That's up to you. I just want to talk about it. Doesn't matter. If I like it, that's cool. That's fine. But it should never reflect upon you that a critic likes or dislikes something. Because critics don't make the art. Critics are very easy to break things apart and give their opinions on it, but unless you've made the art and can understand the process, it means nothing. And I don't mean this as a slight to other programs and to other critics and other peers. I just am saying in general, I am overwhelmingly tired of, I don't like this. If you don't have anything to say about why you don't like it, just shut the fuck up. And now <laughs> that I've said all that, we can begin... This episode, about a film called Chocolate, written and directed by Mick Garris, that I'll say immediately, I don't know if I particularly like this, but does it matter? Does it matter in the slightest least bit? I don't think so. Oh, fine, you can call it murder. Doesn't matter. Just humor me, okay? Start from the beginning. Chocolate. I just kept tasting someone else's chocolate. How do you know it wasn't a dream? It wasn't a dream. No man ever loved a woman the way I loved her. It's happening. Mm, what's happening? Jamie, what is it? You know these spells I've been having? Stop it! Well, it's a woman. I can see what she sees. I hear what she hears. I can feel what she feels. Wally! What's the matter? I can't see! What are you doing? About the names of people. Why you? You think I don't spend every minute thinking about that? No! Please, don't go! I just knew I had to find her. 
But what did you expect to do once you found her? I don't know. I loved her. And then all the visions just stopped. You know, that's not an easy story to swallow. And I knew what it felt like to die. I wanted to pretense things with a discussion on Mick Garris and his work because I it's it's not just a matter of like, oh, I'm going to kiss ass. I can tag Mick Garris in this. He might be able to listen to it. I genuinely respect the person. And I, I, I know words are so cheap, but you, you say you don't like a product. You say you don't like a piece of art. People will be so quick to assume that you don't like the artist. You don't like the manufacturer. And I, 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 I find that hurtful. I find that condescending and cheap. And I don't want to be condescending or cheap, nor do I want to be hurtful with any assessment, with any thoughts that I have. Because who the fuck am I? I'm just a guy. I've been in a couple movies. I've been a, a film judge for festivals. I'm a writer. I do some paintings here and there. But I'm fucking nobody. I'm not Mick Garris. I wasn't in Thriller. Was not in the thriller video. I did not make the making of Videodrome documentary. I did not make Sleepwalkers. Which also has the greatest use of my favorite song on the planet, Sleepwalkers by Santo and Johnny Farina. Oh, it's so good. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's cheesy and tacky. What matters is how you feel when you finish watching the movie. If you felt anything, and I'm not just talking about Mick Garris, I'm talking about everything from Apocalypse Now to The Room, anything. If you felt emotion, then the artist did their job. I've gotten a little bit off point. I got a little bit off point there, I'm sorry. Let's get into chocolate. I think we're 20 minutes into this episode. Let's actually talk about the, the, the task at hand. But I felt, uh, truly, it was important to discuss Mick and discuss Mickey with the good hair, as I so lovingly like to call him, because I'm enamored with the man. I just think he is a positive force that you don't see often. You just don't get positive people. <laughs> you, you, they don't really exist too much in this day and age, and everything that Mick does is speckled with positivity and a, a genuine passion and love, and it doesn't matter anything beyond that point. So I've gotten all that said to say I didn't like this very much, but let's dig in. Let's talk about it. Based on a short story written by Mick Garris when he was around 34 years old, I believe, and this film came out in 2005. It's episode 5 of Masters of Horror. It's a uncanny piece of cinema. On one hand, I really don't care for it. But on another hand, I think it might be one of the better episodes of the entire first season and one of the only ones that actually works in the format, at least in my mind, of what I believe Masters of Horror to be. And I've discussed this on some previous episodes, but fuck it, let's just bring it up again. In my mind, the critical idea of this show is you've got a director and a writer. The writer is a master, the director is a master, and you're getting kind of the 
uh, greatest point of their work, the most definitive example of why these people are masters of horror. And to do a brief recap, we've got the first episode, Don Coscarelli, Incident on and off a mountain road. I think it is exemplary prowess shown from Coscarelli's standpoint that he, as a director, uh, just running and gunning, goddamn, he can get so much done, and it look real and look believable. And I've also brought up on all these episodes before a, a very deep quandary of what the budget was per episode, because some look like $10,000, some look like $20,000, some look like more, and that too, I think, comes down to the artist at hand. I don't think Toby's Hooper's was, was good. I don't think the money was well spent. I, I have a whole episode about it, so you can just go listen to that one instead of me digressing into it. You've got Dario Argento's. There seems to be an actual budget with that one. They had location shots. It, it wasn't just the soundstage as to where Coscarelli's clearly was shot on a back lot. I don't think there's a single scene in... Hoopers, no, that's not true. There are a couple outdoor scenes. But for the most part, they seem very compartmentalized, very cheap when it comes to the production and the budget. And I could be completely wrong. I am so uh, unbelievably, unbelievably wrong all the time. But chocolate, you see a lot on screen. I, I think every single piece was used on screen here. And I don't want to you know speak out of line or speak poorly but Mick being the showrunner everything is is based on him I don't know if he got things a little bit easier but he also used his own short story which I find really interesting that uh, Don Coscarelli used Joe Lansdale Stuart Gordon had an HP Lovecraft story and some other ones seemed like they were more modern written for the project story We'll talk about those when, of course, we get to them. But Mick Garris used Mick Garris for his background for this. And from what I understand, this was written 20 years previously, and he had tried for years and years and years to get chocolate to come to the screen. And I am baffled but deeply intrigued by what the, the short film is. And the short story where this comes from, there aren't what I would say to be drastic differences in plot, but there's enough that you have way too many questions instead of answers at the ending regardless. So let's go to the synopsis here. Jamie, played by Henry Thomas, works in a laboratory that develops flavors for a food company. One day... He begins to suffer a series of hallucinations until he realizes that he's actually living the experiences of a woman in another city as if they were his own. So that kind of sounds like Videodrome-ish. That has a really weird tweak and plus to it, but I don't, don't understand anything about this story or the film iteration that was done for Masters of Horror. The short story by Mick Garris seems like a very, very personal thing, and I'm not sure if perhaps the Avatar is based on him, but what we're dealing with is Jamie is going through a divorce, and he's dieting at the same time. He's completely composed with lust. 
He is lusting after love. He's forlorn. He's looking back on his life and women in general. But he's on this incredible diet and he's lusting for everything else. And we learn throughout the story that he begins shining, if you will, or flashing on this woman. But it's a little bit different than what Dick O'Halloran explains to Danny Lloyd what a shining is. Do you know how I knew your name was Doc? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? I can remember when I was a little boy. My grandmother and I could hold conversations entirely without ever opening our mouths. She called it shining. And for a long time, I thought it was just the two of us that had to shine to us. Just like you probably thought you was the only one. But there are other folks Though mostly, they don't know it or don't believe it. Jamie is feeling these experiences. He is living through this woman. He is inside of her. And it's a very quick and abrupt short story. It goes from point A to point B, but that's not entirely true. It doesn't seem to have a point A, and it doesn't have a point Z. So it goes like G through X and skips a great deal of pieces and points, and then it ends. But it's somewhat still sensual. I think there's a, a deep male gaze with the story and that it's very composed based on almost like this incel sort of thing. Like the guy hasn't been touched for so long that he almost hates people. And none of that's really brought up, but the character seems very stagnant, very sterile. He isn't emotional. He hates cats. <laughs> How can you trust someone that hates cats? There's a part where he talks about not being able to cry and that he would have to think about a deceased family member to really bring tears to his eyes. A very sterile person. And they start feeling for the first time. But it's this other person's feelings. It's this experience through this other person. And he slowly becomes maddened by it. He becomes deeply in love with this person, although he never really gets to see their face and... It's, it's all sexual. It's all these experiences. The person that he is sharing these emotions with, they have sex. And there's a part where he has a full clitoral and vaginal, as it's stated directly by McGarris, orgasm. And it's a man. It's a man's body. And this is being felt inside of him. And it sounds transgressive. But unfortunately, there isn't enough in the meat of the short story, and we've not even gotten to the film yet, but just as well the film, to give it any uh, direction more than you're clinging to this and you're trying to feel the emotion and trying to understand what's going on, and part of your mind is like, well, could this be moving into an out-of-body experience thing? Could this be the writer talking about something much bigger? Could this be an allegory for gender? Could this be an allegory for loneliness or what happens when people are starved of attention? And you start formulating and coming up with all these different concepts of what it could be about, and unfortunately, when the story ends, and I'll, I'll try, I try so fucking hard, but that doesn't get us anywhere, does it? To not spoil absolutely everything if you haven't seen it, but the short story was written 20 years before the film came out, and the film came out in 2005, so there has been, I think, a fair enough width of time to 
possibly maybe spoil some things. When you get to the end of it, there's just absolutely no resolution. And sometimes it is very important to explain why things happen. Other times it's not. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Who gives a fuck? Who cares why it's happening? Gas crisis. That's why it's <laughs> that's why it's happening. That's why fucking Toby Hooper wrote it. But that's a different story for a different fucking day. But why is Leatherface the way he is? Who cares? It's a fucking guy that wears somebody else's face and he makes pig sounds and he kills people with a hammer. Isn't that scary enough? Doesn't that do something for you? We don't need the explanation. But with how this whole thing is form formulated and formatted, we don't really have a beginning. We're just interjected into Jamie's life, and it doesn't seem like a particularly miserable life. Let's try and transform here a little bit, too. I'm gonna, I've been really focusing on the short story, but they go hand in hand. So just take it with me. We'll discuss both uh, at the same time, and I'll try and point things out if I get too deep into my own psychobabble. The story and the film begin fairly similarly. The, the, the film interjects you more into a plausible universe as to where the story is just a, a single narrator that is explaining what has gone on. So you don't have any need to bridge and to build things forward. And maybe at this point I should just stop bringing up the short story because what's the possibility that you've read it? And I'm not saying that in a condescending manner, but I have no idea where you could find this. The episode, on the other hand, is much more easily accessible. The short story, like I said, is just this single narrator and it retells and regales these experiences that uh, could possibly be the absolute truth to love and emotion that this character Jamie has ever felt. As to where, when we begin with the film, we're just interjected into this guy's life. And it's not a terrible life. He's gone through a divorce, but he seems fairly amicable with his ex-wife. They have a wonderful child together that they should be proud and happy to co-parent with. He has a gorgeous Gorgeous. They call it an apartment, but it seems like a house uh, downtown somewhere. The ex-wife has a wonderful house. He has a great job. Everything's moving forward. It's like a 30, 40-year-old guy just kind of stuck. Life gives you lemons and you shit your pants sort of situation. He's shitting his pants. That fucking made no sense. He has a great job working for a laboratory that synthesizes flavors for... In the short story, it's clear that it's for jelly bellies, that he's a jelly bean flavor scientist, and it has this sort of uh, mysticism in the film of like, well, this guy, what is he synthesizing flavors for? And this, for me, is something I, th I think is problematic with the story, that there are so many angles, and by the end of it, you're kind of pulling at straws, trying to figure out if any of the previous things played in to what makes the events of the story happen. Because it's a kind of bizarre job. He works in this laboratory. He synthesizes flavors. At the beginning, he's really focused on trying to make the perfect honeydew flavor. And you feel maybe something from his work experience is what causes the rest of the action to happen. But it's just very abrupt. Suddenly, Henry Thomas, Elliot, the Henry Thomas from E.T., it's Elliot, he starts having these out-of-body, in-body experiences where this person has completely taken him over, like those things from Twin Peaks Season 3. What were they called? Tulpas. Like a tulpa.
Well, not really. But regardless. Now that I've said it, it's nothing like a tulpa. Just disregard that. And it's not like he's going to the store with her and watching her pick out milk. He's feeling her penetrated. He's feeling her have orgasms. He is seeing plight. He is seeing fright. He is experiencing her darkest moments. And it seems sometimes like it's possibly triggered from his ex-wife. And we learn in the short story that he has specific allergies to a cat and certain scents. Maybe that's why he found this job working in this taste lab. But in the film version, it, it seems like there's a trigger and there's a synchronicity that every time he has these body flips, it's at 11.11 or 5.05, and he has smelled the same thing, this faint uh, synthetic rose. And you hear this almost Buddhist kind of bell that rings in the background, and it transcends, but the moments are very sparse. Um, none of them really seem to connect. There's a scene of sensuality where the the person he's experiencing, they're they're having sex and they're about to orgasm, and it's a really awkward scene because he's experiencing this female orgasm, but it looks like Henry Thomas is having a seizure. There's nothing sensual or calming or sexy about it, and as I mentioned with the short story, there seems to be. Uh, a, a, a male gaze and I don't know if it's Mick Garris I think it's more or less the character but we get so little understanding of this character and who he is it makes things really impossible and as I mentioned with the story it's just this one narrator the film translation has opened things up a great deal and we have other characters we get to explore what Jamie's life is like and what his work life is like we've got the great that guy actor, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute, Matt Frewer, and that guy. What does that mean? Well, we all know Dick Miller, and he was that guy. He was in everything for years, but there's tons and tons of that guys. You've seen them in TV. You've seen them in films. You never quite know their name, but Matt Frewer, I know his name because he's from D.C., and I always have a great deal of camaraderie or love from people from my local area, and I'm I'm from the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. We call it the DMV down here. So I know Matt Frewer. You might recognize him better. He's in the Dawn of the Dead remake, 2004. That's usually where I, I, I piece him from. He was also in Watchmen. He takes over the role of Job in Lawnmower Man 2 Beyond Cyberspace. Uh, he's in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Orphan Black. He was in Eureka, I think its entire run. Great character actor. You see a picture of him, you'd go, oh, that guy. You'd know exactly who he is. Not all of this was fabricated and created for uh, making the, the film version a little bit more dense and giving it different angles. And I love the character. I love the people. It's a very wholesome and, and rounded, real world. And going back to something I had said at the beginning of this show, I, I don't have an interest in discussing whether something is... Is it good or bad? What's the story? What happens? I am dancing around here. But I think the story, no matter what, with chocolate is kind of nonsense. We jump in. We don't have a beginning. We never get an ending. This is one of the most unsatisfying resolutions to any of the episodes of Masters of Horror, and that includes the one about the cannibal fucking George Washingtons. <laughs> it's just like, what the fuck? Okay, I get it. Maybe. I think I get it. But the production of the entire thing is pretty perfect and fits better 
I think, for the motif and the motives of this entire show than anything else. And when you're working and, and dealing with an anthology, it's not that there are rules, but there kind of are rules. You can go back to as early as EC Comics, Creepy Comics, the origins of anthology and things like the Crypt Keeper and these uh, iconic characters. You can move into the 70s with Hammer and Amicus Productions who both did their fair share of some of the most groundbreaking and best horror anthologies. And then you've got the, the quintessential granddaddiest of them all, Stephen King and George Romero's Creep Show, just kind of sets a motive and a motif for how you create and run a horror anthology. There's a vibe. Tales from the Dark Side is another great example. Laurel Productions, George Romero, all the great guys involved with Romero's work. I love Tales from the Dark Side. This feels closer to something like that. It, it is articulately and wonderfully shot. And I've brought up many times before a, a, a straight query I'd love to know. What were the budgets per episode? This one seems exuberant, but it... It's the artist, and it's what is particularly shown to you on screen. Despite this having, to me, a somewhat bland color palette of almost entirely beiges and creams, and there are some deep reds, there's some nice colors, but they're not focal points. Everything is so beautifully shot and lit, very organically. Everything seems so real, but all the while tight. And as the film continues and moves forward, you go through these very tight hallways that... I couldn't help but feel almost sort of vaginal that as the character is moving forward, he keeps moving through these hallways and layers as he gets closer to the center of this woman. And I think there's a lot more that meets the eye with the story that isn't isn't there. And of course, there's no fault outside of Mick Garris because it's his production and it's his short story. But I find it to be almost experimental like uh, David Lynch has this short film called Six Men Getting Sick and uh, it's one of his earliest short films he did it while he was in college I think it came out in 1967 maybe 1968 or so and it's it's this animation of these six guys getting sick but when you start watching it you realize six faces don't always appear sometimes there's five sometimes there's only four but the sixth face begins appearing inside of a face of another one and you start watching in there's the siren blaring the entire time and you're you're fixated on it and there's words on the screen that are directing you to other parts of the screen and at first it doesn't seem like there's much there at first it seems like this really weird bananas animation of like what the fuck am i watching what is this why is it that the siren is is awful and you start falling into the world and breaking apart all these different little clues and pieces that were left for you by the director, I really feel that chocolate has similarities to something. I mean, it's not like it's a fucking homage. And I said at the beginning of the show, people have this tendency of taking words so incredibly seriously. And I don't want to mislead or misconstrued the audience by me talking about this short film and then going back into chocolate that there's a, a share of similarities. But my reason for bringing up Six Men Getting Sick is seeing... Nothing while seeing so many different things and you watch something for face value and you don't quite pick up on what the purpose is. And I'm not suggesting you watch something four or five times as I may or may not have with this episode chocolate episode five of Masters of Horror. But I do think there is something that is much more 
that meets the eye. Unfortunately for me and you, the audience, this humble critic, I just don't know what it is. There are so many different reasons why this could happen, and that's the core thing. I think we've gotten far enough now that maybe I can do a little bit of spoilers. We get no resolution. There's no ending. This guy is going through a hard time, and suddenly... He starts having this woman's experiences. He starts feeling her from the inside. We never learn why. We never learn how it started. And maybe why is too much, but the how, something, was needed to kind of bring us forward. And the story ends, I think, in a little bit more of a peaceful place because we're just hearing these thoughts. We're, we're, we're listening to this narrator and we're in this fictional world where we can just acknowledge him. But when you translate it and you move it to the film production version, there is like a middle, but no beginning whatsoever. And the structural format just drives me a little crazy because this is something that I want more out of. It really entices you and there's the sense of dread that is built upon so wonderfully. And Mick Garris has a great great talent of doing this. The greatest example I can give is the the Shining miniseries of just slowly raising the temperature and bringing that dread and knowing what's going to happen. But he made that miniseries so uh, wholesome. I mean, you really actually care for Jack. You really care for them as people. It's just not uh, thrown at you. And Kubrick's film, of, of course... Kubrick's film, it's a fucking masterpiece, everybody knows about The Shining, we don't have to talk about it, but you just are dropped into the world here, you don't get some of the things that make the story really powerful, like the flashback sequences before Jack was a vicious drunk when he accidentally broke Danny's arm, the beehive, there's a lot of stuff that builds anticipatory fear, and it seems to me that Mick Garris has a, a beautiful talent with kind of just winding you up and getting that going, and you have this great sense of dread. You know something terrible is going to happen, but when it does, it's not even that it's anticlimactic. It's just unexplained so much that it it does the climax wouldn't matter because you're you're almost craving an explanation at this point. You need it. You have to have something. And so much runs with this taste and the, the namesake of the story of chocolate. That's where it all begins. I love how it's described in the story. It's one of the first lines of dialogue. Chocolate is called the good stuff. So it's almost like there's no other addiction. There's there, He's not a drinker. He's not a smoker. He doesn't smoke pot on the side. He has lost his marriage and has gone on this huge diet. And that's how both of them begin, the the film and the story. This guy's on this crazy, crazy diet, and all he is left with is lust. So maybe that started it? And you get these blips in the understanding of this person who he is feeling and experiencing, but we don't get enough of them to really give us an idea. Is this person calling out? Are these two ships in the night that are so lonely their signals are slowly picking up upon each other? That would be pretty to think so. There would be some sort of meat, something that you could dig your teeth into with that. And aside from a very articulately shot piece... There's not a lot that you can dig your teeth into, but that takes us back to something like EC Comics, Amicus, uh, not so much Creepshow, but maybe earlier 70s and 60s horror anthologies. It's a horror show. 
So it's like a freak show. You just you put your nickel in and you look into the the viewfinder and you watch this shocking piece of cinema. Does it so much matter where it begins or ends? No. Are you shocked? Did you feel something? And there are some really bizarre sequences. I mean, you watch a biological man have a vaginal orgasm, and despite the scene being good or not, you do have to give credit that not only is the guy's girlfriend, but his ex-wife and child are in the room for this whole sequence, and you get to watch Alizot have an orgasm. It's really weird. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not, I mean, that's not the best way to fucking describe something. Look at my professional criticism. It's really weird. It's not, uh, um... Weird in a good way, though. You know, it's not like a, a weird you can latch onto and show all of your friends because it, it's always the same thing when you get to the end of it. Well, what the fuck? Why? Why did that happen? I mean, imagine if you were reading Frankenstein and it just began at the part where Victor creates the monster and then it just ends with him going, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. That's kind of what we're working with here. It's such an elaborate setup. And all the devices are used so properly. You really have a, a buildup that is quite tremendous. But once it's all released, you expect there to be another scene, another segment perhaps giving more detail to it. And we just go to credits. And, um, you know, I, I, I discussed this with the great Kevin Matthews on our episode about dreams in the witch house it just ends when things are really really getting hot and of course these are only an hour long and there are budgetary restrictions but being able to direct your own story you would traditionally expect maybe a little bit more and there there was more given to us i love the build-up i love the extra characters i love the world i think this could be potentially a feature-length thing, but there needs to be a strengthening. And I brought up, I think this is still one of the strongest episodes of Masters of Horror, and it really is, this might be cheesy, but I think it's the vibe. It's it's the feeling that is presented. This feels so right. Uh, almost like you, you were just surfing channels and kind of, even if you saw it from the beginning, and got the amazing, amazing theme song. You feel like you were just surfing through channels and fell upon it, and you got to see this little blip, and that kind of takes you to this very nostalgic place of surfing channels in the late 80s, 90s, trying to find something good and finding USA Up All Night, or Joe Bob Briggs or something, and seeing some strange piece of psychotronic cinema. Waitress. I don't need a waitress right now. I'm mentioning the movie Waitress and the movie Student Confidential. Both of them on Up All Night, USA Up All Night. I'm Gilbert Gottfried. Both movies on USA Up All Night. Tonight at 11, 10 Central. Saturday. TNT's Monster Vision in one word. Five horrific movies where one word is worth a thousand pictures. TNT Monster Vision's They're Here Terrorthon, Saturday at 8 on TNT. And there's something about that that I, I just, I, I have more respect for, I think, than a lot of um, the previous films. I mean, I don't want to talk about anything we haven't gotten to, but just looking at the four that we have discussed beforehand, Coscarelli's is, is amazing. I think it's great. 
but I think everything Don Coscarelli does is great and amazing. I, I, there's faults still to be had with it. Stuart Gordon's, it's not that I feel he's lazy, but I think it was a bit of a lazy effort. I don't see Stuart Gordon on screen. Toby Hooper's I thought was reprehensible. I really don't care for it. It doesn't feel like Toby Hooper. And that's neither here nor there. I also, unfortunately, didn't really care for Jennifer that much. So we move from all these ones I don't like. Not that that matters or has any weight. This one, I too, I don't get the story. I don't know if I like this, but at the same time, I do like this. It's shot so well. It holds this weird place, and you really stick to the story. There's no looking away moments where you're just like, uh, you're questioning things. You're, you're wondering if you missed something the entire time, but the production itself is pretty fucking wholesome. It's very beige. It's very, very bland, and I feel... That's kind of a representation of Jamie, of, of the lead character, that he's a very bland person. And I think that's a lot of the energy and point of this story is this person hasn't experienced a lot. They don't uh, give themselves up for emotion. They don't allow themselves to feel. So maybe they've opened themselves up in so much pain and so much hunger and want and yearning for just more. They want a, a human connection. They want to eat a giant fucking steak. They want to do so much and they're pushing themselves back. You also have the idea that the character has recently gone through a divorce. We don't know why. Was it his fault? Did he cheat? Did he do something? Is he trying to make amends in his head for an idea of himself that is bad or awful? All of these are great questions, but it doesn't matter because we don't get any transcendence what is happening. And when we do finally get to meet the other character, we learn nothing. If anything, we learn more trepidation because this character, Catherine, is a murderer. And we experience this murder and we go through this, but it's still all so vague. And it's kind of the, the, the hook and the catch of the story is that Jamie experiences a murder through Catherine. And that's the horror aspect of this. Up until then, it's it's almost entirely melodrama, which is a, a, a point of contention for me because it's kind of impressive. Like, Mick Garris shoots a really good-looking melodrama. <laughs> it looks pretty good. I Maybe if he did... I'd, I would be really interested in even a, a non-horror story, just sad kind of coming-of-age movie from Mick Garris because it looks good. He set things up so wonderfully for that, and then the horror elements are mixed in, and it's like, what the hell? It's like you needed something specific for a recipe, and you got the wrong spice, and you went, fuck it, I'm going to use it anyhow. And it works, but it doesn't work. I don't think by any means is it, like, trash, or is it the worst thing on the planet, but it it's filled with holes. It's a big old piece of Swiss cheese, and I love Swiss cheese, man. <laughs> Here's something personal about your dear host, Harry Scott. I am a big fan of Swiss cheese. Holes or not, there was something to consume, though. There was something that the horror kid in me, the person that is enamored with horror culture, with horror films, just as Mick Garris is, I felt that consumption. So it's not like you can't tip your hat, because comparatively, at least the first four episodes before this, there hasn't been an overwhelming sense of horror. And this is something that Mick has brought up in the past before, that each episode of Master of Horror changed direction and appearance and motives so much that kind of possibly could be one of the, the reasons for the ill success of the show, that it did change so much you really couldn't get 
your your hooks into it and even just as a horror fan things do change you've got this very survival uh heady horror film with the very first one and then you move into something that it's like a full moon charles band vibe which it's that's ironic because it's fucking Stuart Gordon but it was so much more and and you know what I mean by that is like it's it's a bit more of a fantastical vibe full moon goes into Charles Band in general goes into much more esoteric realm and there's much more uh, almost like childlike whimsy to the story and then you go into something like Toby Hooper's Dance of the Dead with the Matheson story and it's very real it's very post apocalypse it's it's frightening the world is already at this place where we're all living where society's just on the edge and the story should be sexy and evocative and it's just kind of a, a fart just not even a loud one it's just kind of a, a whimpering fart and that a ts Eliot quote the world won't end with a bang but with a whimpering fart i think so and then argentos oh yeah I just, I don't know. I don't like that one at all. This was the vibe. This was the the horror and the masters of horror, but still it's a fucking melodrama, so it's, it's so confusing. The series itself takes on so many different faces and shapes, and I think after this one, after episode five, it moves more into a positive territory where the vibe kind of stays the same, but... Uh, even saying that word over and over and over again, you can't sell something, you can't carry something on a vibe. It has to have something with a bit more substance and structure, and that's truly where chocolate is lacking, that it has substance, but it doesn't seem to have a structure. There's an idea, but the fluency of the idea, I just don't understand, and I, I, I would kill to talk to Mick Garris about something like that. Can you imagine Mick Garris talking to us on Death by DVD? I have so many questions for him, and most of them just come from chocolate because I don't dislike this at all. I'm more confused by it. I'm, I'm taken aback by it. I want to understand more about it. But at the end of this episode, what I can say certainly is, God damn, if Mick Garris doesn't shoot a beautiful product perfectly framed i love the color in this even though it's this like drab boring beige you get these glimpses of the exotic lifestyle that Catherine lives on top of jamie's beige boring world look at his house he's nothing he's got a photo of his wife and kid and him and he's ripped his wife out of it but nothing's on the walls no posters nothing just this bland blank existence very stripped away from feeling anything and i i feel either one it's just bad set dressing or two it's intentional because that's who the character is and it's the the flexing arm of mick garris bringing stuff from the story forward because we learn in the story that the guy's kind of emotionless and he fucking hates cats fuck that guy how can you hate cats it's not bad but it's not good either but does that fucking matter? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. I think this is a really intriguing episode, and I'd love to hear your feedback. What do you think about this episode of Masters of Horror? Let us know. Email me, deathbydvd at deathbydvd.com. Do you like this one? What do you think? What's it about? That's the big question. What is it about? I can tell you the plot all over again. I can read you the synopsis. 
but what is the point? And I think, I think, it always gets me in trouble when I do that, but I think there is something bigger here, and there's a lot of different directions that you could take it into. I personally see a lot of this kind of, of male gaze, this uh, almost misogynistic look at women, that there's a, a lot of depiction of how this character Jamie sees the woman, and that he never really sees her face, but he's fallen in love with her because of her body, and because of the lavish way she lives, and her luscious lifestyle, that all of it's very ego-based, and it's very vicious, that he doesn't he loves her, and it's become his infatuation, and every moment of his life is hoping that these experience happens again, but he doesn't know her. He doesn't know who she is. He doesn't acknowledge her as a human being. So there's a lot of substance, but there's just not enough plot and story for that substance to be driven more clearly, and I think that's a shame, my, my personal testament there, because I think it's a good story. We just needed more. We need more of it. And I wouldn't be upset if we got more of it now. I, w <laughs> I would like to know more about chocolate. But I think that is going to bring us to the end of this installment of Death by DVD Does Masters of Horror. I don't know where else to go. I, I really wanted to make it clear, though, with this episode, my feelings and sentiment toward Mick Garris as just a dude. And he is. He's so much a dude. He's a California guy. And I mean, like, that, I mean, that word is used so much. You know, hey, what's going on, dude? No, he's a dude. I think I've said this before about Don Coscarelli. We've all seen The Big Lebowski. Mick Garris is so amicable. He does so much for the horror community. Massive career. If I could even do uh, a pinky's nail worth of what Mick Garris has done, I, I would just die so happy and feel like an achieved person. His achievements are insane. Uh, I said this at the beginning, but man, just look at some of the people he's worked with, worked for. They've worked with him. He's They've worked for him. It's insane. Horror culture, the horror genre, the last 45 going on 50 years, so much thanks needs to be given to Mick Garris. And a lot of it is him being a horror historian and making sure that so much that we love and that we cherish is available for ages and ages and ages to come. His show is tremendous. Postmortem with Mick Garris is coming to an end. I think the last episode will have aired before this episode airs, and tremendously. What a sigh. I feel like it was when Leonard Cohen died all over again. I just wanted to put my head down and, and let out the world's biggest sigh because Mick Garris's podcast has brought so much light to horror fans. It's turned so many people that otherwise would have never thought horror was a true art form into horror fans. He has supported numerous independent artists just as well as the big guys like Eli Roth. He has shined light and given so much more depth to a genre that people just pass over, people consider to be pornographic or or vile and evil. Mick Garris's love, his attention, his compassion to horror. Uh, there's there's just nobody else like it. I just don't I don't think there's anybody else out there who loves the genre as much as Mick Garris. So everything on this episode, I hope you, the audience, have been able to take with a grain of salt. And obviously, I hope it's inspired you to watch Masters of Horror. But more importantly, I hope it's it's helped 
with a little bit more respect on that name. Mickey with the good hair. It's not about productions. It's not about money. It's not about leverage. It's not about having a name for yourself. It's his genuine love and passion. He loves monsters. He loves the weird and strange, the beyond, the esoteric. And he's given us countless gifts of Stephen King film iterations. From producer to director, Mick Garris is such an important person, and we should take care of him at absolutely all cost. Cheers to you, Mick. It certainly put a frown on my face knowing that postmortem is going away, but the gift you've given to people, it's forever. You know, it's just a very, very important thing. Mick Garris, very important guy, big guy, great guy. <laughs> oh, man, this was a hard episode. Did I, did I talk about chocolate enough? Did I talk about it enough? I don't know. Alright, I think we've reached the end of this episode, or I'm just going to keep repeating myself. You have been listening to Harry Scott Sullivan, and this was Death by DVD Does Masters of Horror Season 1, Episode 5, Chocolate, written and directed by Mickey with the Good Hair. Next time on Death by DVD Does Masters of Horror, we've got Episode 6, Homecoming, directed by Joe Dante, screenplay by Sam Hamm, and written by Dale Bailey. It'll be fun, fun, fun for everyone. But that's it. Mickey with the good hair. I love you. The ashtray is full, and the bottle is empty. Until next time, pleasant tomorrows. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. Crystal Sunshine Mountain in any town USA with transmitters on top of the Empire State Building. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. <laughs>